The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 21. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. The surprising thing about this play is how back-to-back its famous scenes and moments appear. It's a play that is full of exemplary moments in Shakespeare's writing, all tightly woven into this short, muscular tragedy. A key talking point in Shakespeare's presentation of this tragedy of murder is the palate cleanser that he gives us right after this most ungodly crime. In his own time, the murder of a king was an act of great political violence. And, lest we forget, Shakespeare wrote this play very soon after a shocking attempt to do just that. For his own audiences, the fact that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth so determinately assassinate their visiting monarch would have made for incredibly tense viewing. This is not to say that contemporary audiences today are any less shocked by murder, one hopes, but it really is worth bearing in mind the audacity of Shakespeare's writing. To change the air completely, he now gives us a scene that couldn't be any less like what has gone before. Macbeth certainly isn't a funny play, but right now we meet the one comic character in the story. There's been a consistent knocking at the south entrance, and now, rather logically, we meet the porter on his way to open the door. For the record, there have been those who insist that Shakespeare did not write this scene, but it's so full of references and cleverness that I think it's safe to assume that he did. It also got cut for a few centuries when people thought that this interruption had no place in a tragedy. Happily, those opinions no longer prevail either. Shakespeare has told us, repeatedly, that there was great eating and particularly drinking in Castle Macbeth earlier that night. The king has been extremely generous to everybody and the booze has been flowing. The porter will tell us all about what booze can do in next week's episode, But for starters, we need to be thinking about what sort of a state he might be in, somewhere between drunkenness and the hangover that will follow. A consistent loud knocking is the last thing he probably wants to hear, but of all the people in the castle, it is his job to make it stop, and so he enters on his way to do so. He's probably been asleep on the job. He says, amid this knocking, "'Here's a knocking indeed.' If a man were porter of Hellgate, he should have old turning the key. All of this knocking is a bit of a headache, but it's dramatically very effective. Whoever is outside is eager to get in, and presumably once they are in, they're going to wake up the house and we're all going to see what happens when the king is found dead. That insistent tension never goes away, but the porter does delay it. He comments on all this noise. Here's a knocking indeed. Next, he comments that if a man wound up being the porter in hell, he'd be sick to death of turning the key and opening its doors. This is a little ominous, of course, since we in the audience know that Duncan is on his journey to the next life, and Macbeth himself has wondered whether he'll be going to heaven or to hell. How grim, then, for the porter to be musing right now about opening the gate of hell to new arrivals. There's also an echo here of one of the medieval mystery plays called The Harrowing of Hell. In this story, which appears in all four of the surviving cycles of English mystery plays, 
Christ descends to hell and frees Adam, Eve and various patriarchs from the clutches of Satan. Of particular importance is that, in performance, Christ's arrival at the gates of hell was preceded by a great deal of knocking. This knocking eventually smashes the hell gate, and Christ prevails over the evil held within. As we will soon learn, it is Macduff that is outside, at the south entrance, the one that points towards England, and of course he will eventually prevail over the evil inside Macbeth's castle. But the porter doesn't know any of this. In his imagination, he's just fantasising about being the porter of hell, watching all of the curious arrivals after they knock at his door. And we hear more knocking, and the porter attempts to answer. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there in the name of Beelzebub? Ordinarily, a servant would likely ask visitors to identify themselves on the authority of the castle's master. So the porter, in real life, would be more likely, if he really was shouting out, to ask who's there in the name of Macbeth. But in his head now, he's the porter to hell, and so he asks in the name of Beelzebub. In the York Mysteries, hell actually has a porter, and his name is Ribald. And as you might guess, he answers to Beelzebub, one of the more famous demons of hell. The links to the mystery plays aren't so important that we can't understand the scene without them, but I think they're very interesting in the way that they enrich it. And of course, it's a very subtle way of equating Macbeth with Beelzebub, because there's evil going through this whole play, and he is at the heart of it. Now the porter envisages a new arrival at his hell gate. He says, Here's a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Come in, time. Have napkins enough about you. Here you'll sweat for it. First and foremost, a person who died by suicide would be assumed to arrive in hell. But far worse, we have a farmer who has hanged himself because his calculations went wrong. In 1605, there was a sharp drop in the price of grain, and so if this farmer had been relying on his expectations of plenty, but then the bottom fell out of the market, we begin to understand why he might have killed himself. But we don't sympathise, because this kind of selfish behaviour was very much frowned on. The porter issues him in, come in time. Much has been written, and I'll put some more information in the show notes, about what time might mean here. The richest interpretation that I've seen links it to how time, the past, the future, and particularly the present, are so important in this play, and how it can all come to nothing in hell for even so merciless a reaper as time. The porter suggests that this hanged farmer will have napkins enough about him now, since here in hell he will sweat. The obvious meaning is that hell is hot and he's committed a crime, so he will be sweating, punished for all his time there. But, on top of that, the standard Elizabethan treatment for venereal disease was a sweating tub. So perhaps this farmer will be suffering in a whole different way while he sweats in this version of hell. Next, there's more knocking, and the porter warms to his theme and welcomes another new arrival. Knock, knock! Who's there in the other devil's name? Faith, here's an equivocator that could swear in both the scales against the other scale, who committed treason enough for God's sake, yet could not equivocate to heaven. 
Oh, come in, equivocator. Equivocation got a mention quite a few episodes ago. The idea of saying one thing and meaning another, or appearing to tell one truth while really meaning something else. The play has already had plenty of examples. The witches, those instruments of darkness, tell truths that probably betray. Macbeth lies almost openly, and Lady Macbeth counsels him to look like the innocent flower but be the serpent under it. But all of this is common or garden equivocation. The porter is here referring to a much more famous and more controversial instance. In fact, the reference to a farmer in the previous paragraph is a gentle introduction. Farmer was one of the multiple aliases of the notorious Jesuit agitator Henry Garnet. Father Garnet was among those executed for treason in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot. He was hanged, drawn and quartered very publicly in May 1606. Garnet was a famed exponent of equivocation, of answering legal questions with equivocal, careful responses. The porter seems very clearly to be welcoming Garnet to hell here, which would of course have pleased the king and any audience members offended by the assassination plot. No accident that Porter's exclamation begins, faith, of all the things to be argued over, before he explains that here's an equivocator that could swear in both the scales against the other scale. Garnet was so good at it that he could argue either side of a point and get away with it. He committed treason enough for God's sake. The gunpowder plot was, after all, a religious act. It was an attempt to restore a Catholic monarchy. So all of this treason was committed, in its way, for God. But, as the porter slyly remarks, all of this equivocation wasn't enough to get Garnet to heaven, since here he is in hell. Oh, come in, equivocator, he leers. This would probably have gotten quite a big laugh from a Jacobean audience. Since so many things come in threes in this play, we get a third peal of knocking now, and another turn from the porter. Knock, 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 who's there? Faith, here's an English tailor come hither for stealing out of a French hose. Come in, tailor, here you may roast your goose. This one is a little more obscure to us these days. First time, he said, in Beelzebub's name. Second time, he's perhaps drunkenly, he can't even remember the name of the other devil, who's probably Lucifer or Satan, which you probably shouldn't be saying directly on the stage. And now he's not saying it in anybody else's name. But no more than the joke from the gravedigger in Hamlet about our mad hero blending in among the English for all being mad as well, there might be a local joke embedded here. English audiences, then as now, love being mocked on their own stages, and so perhaps this Scottish porter got a laugh for this English reference. Here we have a tailor who's been sent to hell for stealing from a French hose. I've seen different arguments on this. Either a French hose was very baggy and made of an awful lot of fabric, and therefore easy to steal from, or else it was very tightly and carefully sewn and very difficult to pilfer. Either way, it's a juxtaposition between England and France, and something for an actor to play with. There's also a sexual connotation on the meaning of tailor, allowing for a very crude play between the tailor and the hose. Most editions will explain this for you, so feel free to look up just how filthy the porter is being. 
Regardless, he welcomes this tailor into hell, telling him, continuing the smut, that here he may roast his goose. Again, it's hot in hell. But the knocking continues. So does the porter, saying, Knock, knock, never at quiet. What are you? But this place is too cold for hell. I'll devil porter it no further. I had thought to have let in some of all professions that go the primrose way to the everlasting bonfire. Perhaps the porter is sobering up, or realising just how cold it is, or waking up and realising that he has a genuine job to do, opening the door and letting in whoever is making all this noise. He shouts back at them, annoyed that they seem unlikely ever to be quiet. He wonders who or what they are, and realises that despite his playful fantasies, this cannot possibly be hell. It is too cold. So he'll give over his play and devil porter it no further. Although, he confesses, he could have gone on all night or all morning. He could have let in some of all professions. He's quite prepared to act out the welcoming of people from all trades, any and all of those that go the primrose way to the everlasting bonfire. The original meaning of bonfire was a burning of bones, a bone fire, so there's a rather ghastly echo in this line. Shakespeare was fond of this notion of the primrose way. Remember, we also had it in Hamlet, the primrose path of dalliance. And yet the knocking continues. The porter reaches the door and lets in Macduff and Lennox. As he does so, he's not above asking for a tip. Anon, anon, I pray you. Remember the porter. In some performances, however, this remember the porter is a little more severe and can be said to the audience. All of us could perhaps find ourselves at the door of hell if we don't live better. So perhaps we should indeed remember the porter. The scene is fairly short and is one of the earliest examples of what we sometimes mean by comic relief. But as well as that, we have references to the grain prices, to recent Jacobean politics and assassination attempts, and to sexual mores between England and France. On top of all of this, we have a rather blithely unknowing but brilliant recap from the porter of some of the thematic highlights of the play so far. Much earlier, Duncan told Macbeth that he had begun to plant him and would labour to make him full of growing. This was very much an expectation of plenty, an image that made Duncan like a farmer tending a crop. And now that farmer has landed in hell. Likewise, as mentioned, we've had a lot of equivocation through the play thus far, and Macbeth will give us plenty more before the end of the show. And on top of that, we've had so much imagery of clothing, of borrowed robes, of things fitting or new-worn, that it's small wonder that it's so specifically a tailor that the porter shows in third. This level of intricacy and reflection in a scene that can absolutely just be played for drunken, slapstick or even hungover laughs surely indicates that it is, of course, by Shakespeare and very necessary to the forward motion of the play. By candlelight, the porter can play around and reimagine Castle Macbeth as a hellish dungeon welcoming new sinners, but when he opens the door, the very cold light of the morning breaks in and wipes away his playful delusion. 
The porter will have more to say to Macduff and Lennox as they enter, but we shall leave their entrance for the next episode. I hope that you are all very well recovered from the New Year festivities and not at all suffering like the porter, and that you'll have an excellent year ahead. As mentioned, there are some goodies to be found in the show notes that accompany this week's episode. You'll find them, as always, on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you next week.